Warning, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of violent events and offensive language. It may be disturbing for some listeners. This is what it sounds like outside a prison when an execution is taking place. Marion Wilson is scheduled to be put to death here. His sentence for the 1996 murder of Donovan Parks. Those voices, they're of a dozen or so protesters who traveled to Georgia from Utah, from Florida, and of course, from around the Atlanta area. They're all here to make a statement. But for one of them, the execution of Marion Wilson is very personal. He's her father. Wilson has been in prison for 23 years. His daughter, Takesha, was born one month after he was taken into custody. Her father's been incarcerated her entire life. I mean, 23 years is a long time. I'm 23 now. I'll be 24 next year. I'll come up here to the prison and he'll always take my hair down. We have, um, he always taking my hair down and my hair is like a big afro, a huge afro. And he'll braid my hair and he'll sing to me or rap to me, just just making funny jokes and stuff. It's hilarious. And the fact, like, he loves Lion King. So he'll, he'll mimic Mufasa, like how to say his name. It's so funny. He'll tell me, like, how him and I are so much alike and we're just, like, two goofballs together. Like, when we're together, like, we're just two big goofballs, literally. And, you know, he's just, he just a funny person. Like, he's very, he's very fun. He's fun to be around. And what these people made him out to be, he's not like that. I promise to God he's not. And if anyone who knew him well enough, y'all know exactly who he was. Y'all know exactly who he was. And that's my father, so he's like me. We're just, we're just two big old, two peas in a pod. He told me that he doesn't want this to destroy me and it's not, it's gonna be hard to process all of this and trying to understand why why the fact that I got to hug him today and give him a kiss for the last time that hurt me to death it really did it broke my heart because I would never get to do it again I love you Imagine saying that I love you too for the last time. I love you so much. And I'll miss you so much. So much, so much, so much. I truly am sorry. I'm so sorry.
did it. He didn't. He did it. And now I'm hurting. And now my grandmother is hurting. How you think that makes me feel? And I understand and I apologize on his end. I really do. But this is not right. Something has to stop. This has to change. The 1,500 person, this is not right. That's too many people. Takesha is one of five family members who visited her father inside the prison on execution day. This is the part of the podcast that I'm not at peace with. I've been putting off talking about what I saw in the execution chamber until this moment. I'm the last one to get on board the white Department of Corrections van, squeezed in with four other journalists. The air inside feels cool after standing out in that Georgia summer heat. I smell the vinyl seats. They've been warmed up by the sun. Two of the other reporters work for newspapers. There's one other TV reporter, Randall Savage, from our sister station WMAZ in Macon. There's also a journalist from the Associated Press. She says she's witnessed 21 executions. You heard that correctly. 21 executions. The drive is longer than I expect. We must have driven a mile into the compound. Through rolling green pastures, by ponds... All of this is on prison grounds. The AP reporter says they allow hunting here. The light from the sunset sparkles in the ponds. It's beautiful. Then, out of nowhere, barbed wire everywhere. We're at the concrete cinder block entranceway where we step off the bus and begin walking in. It feels sort of like a ticket booth entrance to a high school football stadium, but instead of a goalpost, there's a guard's watchtower we step off the bus and walk inside through metal detectors, taking off our shoes and belts, just like for the TSA before a flight. Once through security, we turn over our driver's licenses in through a plexiglass window, and we're given a single metal coin. It's about the size of a quarter. Each coin has a number pressed into it, and we'll use it to get our IDs back later. We pull together at a large metal door. It must have been a foot thick. At the sound of a buzzer, we walk inside. Straight ahead, I see a hallway. It must be a hundred yards long. It looks like something from a Stanley Kubrick film. Symmetrical, but decorated with inspirational posters. One has the word teamwork. Another says integrity. And a third says, make it happen. Make the execution happen? No. Most of the people who walk this hall aren't on death row. It turns out this is our holding area of the prison. It's where every inmate in the States, no matter where they end up, is checked into the system and evaluated. This is a processing center. And I wonder if the other inmates know what's happening here tonight. On the other end of the hall, we sign forms, which I probably should read closer. Something about what would happen should things go wrong. I write down an emergency contact and notice the guards at the table next to me eating spinach dip, meatballs, and cube cheese. It's all hands on deck tonight with the state prison fully staffed and on lockdown in anticipation of the execution. Standard procedure. The other media witnesses and I step in line around the corner where a long folding table is set up for us in a kitchen. There's an ice maker. It's large enough to fill 10 coolers and it's loud and overpowering. 
the industrial stovetops are clean and empty. We're all given one bottle of water and our escort points to a tray of cold cut sandwiches. They're the kind with American cheese that's melted from room temperature, not from sitting in an oven. They're for us while we wait. There's a clock on the wall that says the time is 7 p.m. Marion Wilson's scheduled to be executed right now. But in Georgia, executions rarely happen on time. In some cases, the wait lasts long past midnight. Tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court must address a legal argument that was submitted to put this execution on hold. Until that response comes in from the Supreme Court, we wait. One of the journalists starts eating the sandwiches, at least two of them. He dips Lay's potato chips into this pile of ranch dressing. No one else ate. I wonder if the others noticed the baffled expression on my face, just thinking about the idea of scarfing down food at a time like this. But the others may have been thinking it too. My focus is on the job I'm here to do. But this is part of that job, waiting the reporters talk about where they've worked and football. I do my best to tune all of that out. I'm not here to network. And to be honest, it all sounds like bullshit to me. I can't make small talk right now. I get it. It's how they get through this moment. No one seems entirely comfortable waiting on what we're about to see. Even the reporter who's seen 21 executions. Coincidentally, she says the one she missed was Robert Butts last year. He's Wilson's accomplice. Robert Butts was granted a stay of execution for 90 days, so she left town for a girl's trip. Well, even though the courts issued that 90-day stay, it was the very next day that they ruled to move ahead with the execution. He was killed, and she found out about it through a push alert on her phone. I asked her a few questions about seeing so many deaths, but it never gets very personal. She is helpful, explaining that the only way to see the clock in the execution chamber is to look up at the right-hand corner of the glass, where it's only visible through a reflection. She says that we will know when it's close to being time, because they'll offer us coffee and a chance to use the restroom. She also explains that we'll be getting back on the bus. I realize that the actual execution chamber is even deeper in the prison. We're not there yet. Not even close. By now, the clock on the kitchen wall says 8 p.m. That's three hours since we pulled onto Prison Boulevard and about an hour since I entered the prison walls. The other reporters are all still chatting. That ice machine keeps roaring. It's a loud hum with the occasional mini avalanche as ice cubes come sliding down. It probably seems louder than it really is. A guard is stationed just around the corner. She has a plate of meatballs, too, with a side of cheese cubes. I'm still not hungry. I'm staring at the television, but the sound is off. It's not say yes to the dress or the Braves, although they did try to find a game on. Instead, the channel lands on a wildlife show, and that becomes my focus. Reading the closed captioning, watching the animals on screen... Learning things like a camel can drink 56 gallons of water in just three minutes. And a dung beetle may consume all of the moisture that it ever gets in its entire life through one piece of dung it rolls across the African desert. Obviously, I'm trying hard to distract myself. 
a pharmaceutical ad plays during a commercial break, and I notice in the fine print on the screen that death is a possible side effect. The clock moves faster than I expected, and at 9 p.m., our prison escort walks into the kitchen and asks if we need coffee or to use the restroom. This was it. We're almost ready, she says. I don't need coffee. I feel wide awake. A couple of minutes later, we're informed the U.S. Supreme Court denied the stay and petition to halt the execution. The Georgia Attorney General quickly orders the lethal injection. It's all happening within the hour. I documented the experience minute by minute in a small 5 by 7 notebook, the kind with the blue lines from elementary school. That's all I was allowed to carry inside the prison. That notebook and two number two pencils, both issued to media witnesses by the Department of Corrections, were asked to leave behind everything else, all recording devices, cell phones, anything that would communicate with the outside world. At 9.15, one of the other reporters is taken away. He was designated to go in first, ahead of all of us, and watch Marion Wilson enter the chamber. That's where Wilson will be strapped in with tubes inserted, the ones that are set to carry a deadly dose of pentobarbital through his bloodstream. That's the drug that will be used to induce cardiac arrests during this lethal injection. The other reporters and I follow behind maybe five minutes or so later. It's hard to know exactly how the time is progressing now without my phone or my watch. That five minutes gives the other reporter a head start to get in place as Wilson is loaded into the execution chamber. As we're walking out, a guard tells us, have a good night. I wonder if she knows why we're here and what we're on our way to watch. We go back down that long hallway, and before I know it, we're back in the van. We all sit in complete silence on our way to the execution chamber. No one says one word. Outside, it's pitch dark. As we drive deeper into the compound, the guard's guns seem larger at every single entrance. Rifles, riot gear, this is maximum security. We pull up to a wall of barbed wire. It must stretch at least 20 feet. A guard examines our van. He uses a mirror to check it underneath and look under the hood for safety. We're about to enter the centralmost portion of the prison. Someone yells, open the inside gate. And just like that, we're deep inside death row. Four other vans roll in behind us, and we park in a large field outside a small one-story concrete building. It could be a shack almost, judging from what it looks like on the outside. I see Donovan Park's brother, his father, and two other people. They're all standing in line right by the door. They're wearing buttons with Donovan's face. They're the first group to go inside. Front row seats for the execution of Donovan's murderer. Next, men wearing suits file in attorneys, the warden, and then, finally, a friend of Marion Wilson walks into the building. She stands out from everyone else because her hair is pink. We're next, quickly escorted into a small room filled with about 30 people. There are as many armed guards as there are those of us without weapons. We all sit in wooden pews that look like they could be from most any church. There are three rows, maybe four, and everyone is sitting shoulder to shoulder, I recognize the pink hair of the woman who is now sitting just two seats away from me. I remember that she befriended Wilson through pen pal letters she wrote to prison. Everyone is staring straight ahead at the glass window in front of the open room. It must be 20 feet wide, five feet tall. It's this panoramic view of the execution chamber. 
and the room is still and very quiet. The only noise is a hum from fluorescent lights. Marion Wilson is on the other side of the glass in the very center of the room. He's on a gurney that's elevated maybe by about 40 degrees. He's dressed in all white with his arms outstretched like a wingspan. His hands are secured with clear tape. They're each wrapped around a platform that's connected to his palm. With his arms open and elevated to a near standing position, it almost looks like he's on a crucifix. I see the tubes in one arm and the heart rate monitor on the other. He's lucid, looking around the room. He's making eye contact with everyone, blinking. This is the man we're about to watch die. Also behind the glass are three other men. One is in a white coat. The other is a pastor. And then there's Benjamin Ford, the warden. He announces to the room, at this time, with all witnesses present, we will proceed. His voice is carried through a loudspeaker that could be used at a Starbucks drive through It's slightly overmodulated, but pretty easy to understand. The warden asks Marion Wilson if he'd like to make a statement. Wilson already declined one time today. This is his last chance. He takes it, and he actually says a lot. Wilson says, I'd just like to say to my family and supporters, I love you forever. Death can't stop it. Nothing can stop it. I never took a life in my life. They think they know better than me. Nobody escapes this life alive. See you all when I get there. The warden then asks Wilson if he'd like a prayer. He says yes, and the older gentleman behind the glass prays for him. My mind is racing, and I don't write the prayer down. I'm just thinking it's about to happen. It's actually about to happen. I lose my focus just for a moment and become lost in my own head. Then, both the pastor and the warden walk out of the room through a door that's in the back of the chamber. It's now only Wilson and a man in a white coat inside that room. Someone turns off the loudspeaker. Now, it's 9.40 p.m., and Wilson's eyes keep moving from person to person. I wait for some sort of indication that the execution has started. That never comes. Suddenly, as we're all staring, Wilson shouts something out. About to be free, he repeats it. About to be free. I don't have to worry about a chain gang no more. His voice is loud enough to echo through that glass. It's muffled, but clearly audible. He sounds confident, like he's about to escape, not die. He smiles, and he seems to be staring directly at the woman near me, the woman with pink hair. She's quietly crying, tears puddling down her face, her eyes locked on him. She blows Wilson a kiss. 9.42. His chest heaves. He's breathing heavily. His eyes close. 9.43. His chest jolts as his mouth seems to form a large yawn, like he suddenly fell asleep. I look to see if he's still breathing. His chest is moving up and down. 9.44. I look to the doctor in the room who is waiting patiently. I can't tell if Wilson is breathing anymore. 9.45. The lady with pink hair is crying. I hear her sniffle. I think I hear someone's cell phone vibrate. How did that get into the room? 9.46. Wilson looks like he's sleeping. He's very still. 9.47. His color is changing. His complexion seems to be a light shade of gray. 9.48. I wonder, when will this end? 9.49. Still waiting. A guard holds in a sneeze on the left side of the room. 
All 30 people in that room are still staring through that glass at Wilson. He hasn't moved in minutes or shown any sign of pain. 9.51. Time feels so slow. I'm wondering if the execution worked or if somehow he's just sedated. Should it take this long? Two more doctors quickly enter the room from behind the glass. The warden rushes in too. The doctors are in white coats wearing stethoscopes. They examine him, each listening to different places on his body, focused on his chest. 9.52. The loudspeaker is turned back on and the warden speaks. Time of death, 9.52. The execution of Marion Wilson was carried out by law. Curtains on the other side of the glass close. It feels like a theater and the movie is over. I'm quickly escorted out of the room and back into the van with the other media witnesses. As soon as that time of death was called, we were rushed back into the van and speeding back to the media staging area, all of us comparing notes to make sure we're accurately quoting the last words ever spoken by Marion Wilson. Just like that, we're all back in reporter mode, confirming details, dispatching information. We're all on deadline. My live report will lead the 11 o'clock newscast in just under an hour. I'm Jeremy Campbell in Jackson, where Marion Wilson Jr. has become the 51st person killed by lethal injection in Georgia. I served as witness during the execution. His last words were, quote, about to be free. What doesn't come across in a one-minute news report is the ripple effect Wilson's death had on two families. His daughter screamed when she heard the execution of her father was complete. She had to be carried away by her family. That's the last we'd hear from Taikisha on the night of the execution. In fact, we don't hear from anyone connected to Marion Wilson or Donovan Parks for the next few days. Everyone has been through a lot this week, including our team. One day after watching a man die, we debriefed about covering the execution. I was surprised at the reaction from Peyton. She's 19 years old, our intern, and still in journalism school. What caught me off guard was what she took away from all of this. After covering an execution for the first time, she felt hope. Hearing from people last night, kind of, it gave me hope. I don't know, it was, it was nice, yeah. Hope for what? The future, like things being okay, you know? Like all of those people had gone through something and they were okay, so. So you, know. you don't mean hope about the future of the death penalty. You mean hope that someone can yeah. survive through the worst moment of their life and be okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very important lesson to learn. That's one of the central themes of so many news stories that I've covered. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the worst thing to ever happen to you leads to the best. Mm -hmm. Not sure the people outside are at the best yet, but it sounds like you saw them on that journey. Yeah. Yeah, we all, we all did, I think. Well, that's a big part of our job is witnessing humanity at its best and in its worst. In some ways, it's the fundamental aspect of what we do as journalists. Right. Kira, how are you? You want an honest answer? Completely honest. Absolutely depressed. 
I think that was the hardest thing that I have not only seen in my career, but in my life. Watching Marianne's daughter being carried away, screaming. I don't wish that on anybody. Our producer, Maddie Ray, also has something on her mind after execution night. I think it's important to keep in perspective what brought us here in the first place. One night took three lives, but that one night initially took one life, which um, had me thinking about how the Parks' family were doing as well. I know we got to hear a lot from Marion's side, but I think it's important to keep in perspective what last night meant to the Parks' family 23 years later after their son, brother, friend was murdered. For Freddie Parks, Donovan's father, it's been a long journey to justice. He had a front row seat from the day he found his son's body unrecognizably injured in the street to the night he sat just six feet away from his son's killer, watching as Marion Wilson took his final breath. I want to know if after 23 years of waiting for resolution, does he feel relief? Did watching the killer die bring him peace? I called Freddie Parks four days after the execution. I just wanted to follow up with your family and, uh, and see if we could uh, get any sort of statement, any sort of you know, final word you would like to, to share with people after the events of last week. I, I was one of the media witnesses in the, in the room at the time of the execution, and I certainly uh, felt for your family, and I, I, I just wondered if if um, you would share any sort of message with us uh, for our, as we finish our coverage. I'm not sharing the audio recording of what he said to me. That's out of respect to Freddie and out of the code of ethics that we follow as journalists. That's because, put simply, Freddie asked to be left alone. He told me that he doesn't want to talk about it anymore, ever. No interviews, no statements. He just wants to, as he put it, let that be the end. He said he's really through with it. The end. And he apologized for not having more to say. No apology needed, Fred. Five days after the execution, and Marion Wilson's daughter posted another video on Facebook. She's upset. She's emotional. She's been reading the comments section. And according to Taikisha, the comments have not been good. Because how would you feel if it was one of your family members lying on a fucking gurney? How would you feel? Let my daddy rest, bro. He ain't do nothing. And I'm sticking with that. Eighteen days ago, I watched a man die. Number 1,500 executed in the United States. Now, it's time to let this all rest. The family of the victim and the family of the murderer have that desire in common. They told us it's time to let it rest, to let the execution day be the end. I've been asked about the experience by friends and colleagues, and more than I expected have served as a media witness themselves. Some even dated back to the electric chair. It's not something most of these journalists talk about, not often. But after learning that I served as witness too, they reached out, offering a listening ear. I've been warned the experience of watching a life fade away in the execution chamber may bring emotions that I don't expect, 
it may linger. It may even hit me weeks or months from now. Friends have asked me about the experience too, most of them reluctantly, and usually only if I bring it up first. Death is taboo in many ways, no matter how you witness it. When people feel most comfortable, they ask me if the experience changed my perspective on the death penalty. And my answer? Well, that's not what this podcast is about. That's not why I'm here. My job was to serve as media witness and report everything I saw. And with this podcast, that's what I've done. My job is over. It's time to let it rest. But that doesn't mean you can't keep the conversation going. I posted some discussion online, and I'd love to read your perspective about this case and your perspective on the future of the death penalty. You can find me on Instagram at Jeremy Campbell TV or on Facebook at Jeremy Campbell 11 Alive. That's the name of the station in Atlanta where I report on issues like the opioid crisis, the disparate rate of maternal mortality among black women, sex trafficking, and many other issues that impact our communities. This podcast is made possible by our parent company, Tegna, and Vault Studios. Special thanks to our executive producer, Aaron Peterson, producers Kira Frisby and Maddie Ray, who also edited the podcast, Matt Livingston added the music, and Peyton Lewis, our intern. Please like, share, review, and do all the other things that podcasters ask if you have enjoyed this time. That's how we get other people to listen. This has been number 1500, and I'm Jeremy Campbell. Signing off.